I always wanted to know who the best player was on tour simply because I wanted to actually work as hard. And then I ran into a, a little guy by the name of George Knudsen out of Canada. And I watched him hit the golf ball. I watched him with the wide stance, taking the club back way inside, releasing the club. One of the greatest ball strikers I'd ever seen. Now Ballesteros. With a putt that could win him the 113th British Open. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the McKellar Golf Podcast. My name is Lon Stonigan and I'm joined this week as I'm joined every week by my good pal and co-host Mr John Huggin. Our guest this week is Pete Cowan, considered by many to be the best golf coach in the world. Uh, but before we get to Pete, uh, a little bit of selling. The latest edition of the McKellar Golf Journal is available at our website mckellarmagazine.com. If you go there... Click on the shop tab, you will see our beautiful, beautiful edition number three with a wonderful illustration of Seti Ballesteros by Harold Riley on the cover, uh, number three. You can also buy a selection of McKellar Magazine t-shirts. So if golf is your thing and great writing is your thing, then McKellar is definitely your thing. As I say, mckellarmagazine.com slash shop. As I say, uh, Pete Cowan is considered by many to be the best golf coach in the world. We talked to him about his career as a coach, but also as a player on the European Tour. We talked to him about his approach to coaching and what he considers to be the most important aspects of the game. We also talked to him about many of the players he's worked with. Darren Clark, Lee Westwood, Henrik Stenson, Brooks Kepka, Gary Woodland. Pete isn't exactly publicity hungry, so it's a real treat, a real privilege for us to get him on the phone and chat to him for more than an hour. We absolutely loved it. I'm sure you will too. Pete Cowan, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, I've been a bit rough, but I'm okay now. Everybody, and I mean everybody, was freaked out when they saw, I think it was Jamie, Jamie Corrigan reported at first that you, you got the uh, coronavirus. Uh, I yeah, it was pretty bad. I mean, uh, I did actually say to the wife one night, I said, if you've got a pill, I'll take it. That's <laughs> that <felt> bad. <laughs> Any idea how it came about? Uh... I was at the players and I stayed with all the caddies in the house at uh, Ponte Vedra and none of those got it. And I think I probably caught it on the plane on the way over. I mean, you can catch so much on those planes with that recirculated air. I mean, it's just, horrendous some of the stuff that you catch there what you, you catch you can catch stuff in seat 1a pete uh <laughs> yeah there's somebody in one 1b that's the problem <laughs> um again i don't want to dwell on it too much pete but but what happened i mean how did it you know how did it come on what, what happened I mean, how did you feel well i just got i just got a, i just felt felt really weak um and uh feverish coughing you know and i couldn't stop coughing them for days i mean literally you know i mean it was probably on the monday and by you know wednesday night that's when i said to the wife um you know give me a pill or i felt as though i'd got 10 percent of my strength left i I'd no in 90 percent of my strength had already gone and it's hard when you you're coughing every two minutes for you know 48 hours and you can't really get your breath it's that's why I said I found something that's harder than a golf swing. Trying to trying to 
trying to cough and breathe at the same time. It's not it's not very easy. Yeah, yeah so, Pete, have you um, have you had it absolute? I mean, it sounds obvious. It's pretty obvious what you had, but is it? Have you had it absolutely one hundred percent confirmed that it was the coronavirus? No, they came. The the, the ambulance came. And the medics came and they did all the tests and they said, right, everything you've got, you know, poor oxygen in your blood, you've got this, you've got that, you've got the other, you've got every symptom. But if you go to hospital now, which they were going to take me in and they said, go to hospital now, you'll be sat on a trolley for, you know, probably 12 hours and what have you. And there's nothing they can do other than give you paracetamol and look after you. And, you know, then if it does get bad, then you'll have to go on a, a ventilator and all that. And, yeah. So I decided that I'd try and fight it at home, you know, and they said, well, if you get really, really bad, just call us again, we'll whip you straight in. Mm. And your wife's so, been all right, I take it, yeah? Yeah, she's been all right, but I'd say we've been in totally separate rooms. She's just been right. pushing a cup of tea for that 14 days, well, nearly yeah. 21 days in total, pushing cups of tea and food. But for two weeks, I had two slices of toast in two oh, weeks. That's all that. Oof. That's all I ate. I lost 15 pounds in the two weeks. Mm. So that's that's all I had. Well, that's a lot of weight in two weeks, my goodness. But I think uh, I think what helped me was uh, my sons had some um, antibiotics uh, for the old chest, and it was so bad. I'm coughing and everything. And I said, I've got to take something for my chest. It's getting even worse. So he gave me these, and it was some that. Uh, a friend of ours, doctor, had recommended as well. And he luckily got them. And he says, "Right, these, these you've got to take these." And they were there was actually a three-day course, but he didn't tell me that, and I had to call three. to call three. <laughs> <laughs> so it probably helped. It probably helped me out a little bit. The first overdose of your life. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I normally don't. I don't. I normally don't take pills at all. Uh, Pete, how long did it take you to get through the worst of it? Probably um, seven or eight days. But, but what they what they want to do what they want to do now, obviously, they want to test me, see whether I've developed any antibodies, and that's the next test that we get. But they've not perfected that yet, so they can't tell a hundred percent whether you've developed any antibodies. So it's not worth having it done yet because it's not, you know, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, you 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 might be the cure, Pete. You never know. I might be. You never know. Yeah, you never know. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Somebody said somebody said, somebody said to me, are you, "Are you back to normal now?" I said, "Yeah, <laughs> cynical, cynical, miserable old fart." Yeah, I'm back to normal. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah. you're you're up and walking around, Pete. That's the main thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I am no problem. Yeah, yeah I'm walking. Um, I don't know if you're on social media. Uh, no, not not at all. Much beloved, uh, a lot of people were worried. Uh, you were. That's why. That's why I'm beloved because nobody knows me. That's the problem. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> very good. But uh, if you type your name into uh, Google, uh, the number of stories about Pete Cowan having coronavirus is astonishing. But uh, g- good to hear you're on the mend. You, you, what's happened with the range, Pete? I, I guess that's locked down as well. Yeah, it's closed. Absolutely, it's been closed since twenty third of. Um, uh, March 23rd, uh, and nothing, yeah, 
I, I, obviously, are you missing it? I mean, how much? I mean, everybody's missing golf in one way or another. Are you missing it? Yeah, I mean, everybody. I mean, everybody that comes, you know, they've all said, you know, they really are missing it because it's it's a community range, really. You know, you get a lot a lot of people live locally and use it, you know, because uh, you know it's it's a stop off and they like chatting to. If it's not me, it's my staff, and you know, it's 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 a nice facility as well. You know, I put far too much money into it, but you know that's beside the point, really. I overspect it, unfortunately. Um. I, I, I did a silly thing. Ask Pete, does anybody get any questions for Pete Cowan? But I, I mean, people, I've got a million questions, but a lot of people sent in just saying that they use the user range. It's brilliant. You obviously something you're very proud of. Yeah, I mean, my sons run, you know, run it, and my daughter runs the whole thing. My son and daughter, so it's a family thing. And obviously, if it's if it's family, they they look after it. You know, while I'm away for three or four weeks, it's always uh, in good hands, and I know they. You know, they obviously it's going to be theirs when I've gone, and uh, they they do take pride in it. That's for sure. Yeah, I can I can vouch for that. It's a great place. I've been there once to interview Pete, and it uh, it was it, it almost tempted me into hitting balls, Lawrence. How about that? Uh, <laughs> do you ever use it yourself, Pete? Do you go down and hit a few balls, or give a lesson or two? Or... Yeah, that's what I said. I go and pull a few pints and talk to quite a few people. I do, yeah, quite a lot, and. Some of the players come down. Henrik's been down. You know, a lot of the Woozy's been down. Montgomery's been down. There's a lot of players been down to the range and enjoyed it. You know, so I was uh, that must be a real thrill. Somebody comes, <laughs> a bucket of balls, and Henrik Stenson walks along. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was the idea of the? Was it something for the family, or was it? Hey, I want to give something back. This is where I grew up. This is where I live. No, no, it was, it was, the unfortunate thing is, uh, somebody owed me a lot of money and the only thing I could do was take the range off them and, uh, I wish I'd, I wish I'd let the money go. <laughs> 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 uh, you don't cost me 10 times as much to actually put it right. Um, this is, no, you're supposed to say, no, I wanted to give back, I wanted to, uh, but these, as I say, <laughs> I'd be lying. I'd be lying if I said that. Because if somebody asked me and said, you know, I'm going to thinking about building a golf range, I'd said, whoa, whoa, think of the hidden costs. Think that everybody thinks it's great, and they don't realise the hidden costs that there are involved in it. You know, just keeping, just keeping it smart, really. Um, and you know, when when the average when the average spend of you know, because so, it's north of England, it's Rotherham, it's the average spend per person is five pounds. You can't make money. You can't mm. make money on that, and that's, you know, basically two pound fifty for a um, bucket of balls and uh, a pint of beer or a coffee or, a, you know, a tea or something like that, and that's it. That's the average spend of everybody that comes through the door. It sounds like the kind so, of place that a very young Pete Cowan would have spent a lot of time in, though. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I used to when I was uh, the the range near my house where I lived originally. I was there every night for. Oh, first six years of my golfing life every night used to pick balls up and hit them I was allowed to the guy that owned the range he allowed me to pick balls up and you know then go and hit them again if if um, you know if I if I picked up twice as many as I was going to hit so I had to pick up <laughs> if I was going to hit 100 I had to pick 200 up he took 100 off me <laughs> if, you, if you had your time over again though Pete was that is that how you would have done it is that how you would have gone about it what, my goal? 
Just hitting that many balls, yeah? No, ridiculous. I, I injured myself doing it, repetitive strain injury. I was uh, 22, I had a slip disc. I remember having a slip disc um, out for two years, 22, 24, not great. Uh, and I remember slipping it, slipping the disc on the 17th tee in Lusaka in Zambia. I can remember it now. I can hear it go now. Mm. And then the following week, I was in terrible pain, and I played another tournament up in Andola in Lusaka. And I, the German doctor in Andola in uh, Zambia, he said, "Right, you've got to go, you play through the pain barrier." So of course, like an idiot, I did and <laughs> finished up in hospital and uh, out for two years. So that was that wasn't great. Unfortunately, and I went to everybody, you know, faith healers, you know, everything to try and put it right. But it, it never really, it was really um, just rest that sorted it out eventually. Yeah. What sort of a player were you at that point? A uh, decent player. I mean, uh, I just I just played in the Brazilian Open with um, Gary Player when I was 21. Uh, and he'd won it, obviously won the tournament. Uh, that was in 1972 when I played with him. And I'd only, I didn't start till I was 16. Uh, so it was, it was a funny situation. And by the time I was 21, I was playing with Gary Player in the Brazilian Open, which was quite odd, really. And I've never had a handicap in my life. Uh, never been, never been an amateur golfer. I just turned, well, I said turn pro. I didn't turn pro. I asked what local pro if I could worked for him in the pro shop when I was just leaving school and he uh, I was in a fish and chip shop and I knew he wanted an assistant and um, I, I walked up to him I said oh you want an assistant I said uh, I'll, I'll come and work for you I'll work you know seven days a week as many hours as you want and uh, he says what's your handicap I said I haven't got one <laughs> and he said oh for your cheek I'll give you a six month trial so that's how it all started and that was when I was 16 I hadn't played golf and the first two competitive rounds were as a professional and there were six, well, eight weeks after I started and I shot 109, 100 around the course I was assistant at. So it didn't all go well, really. Yeah, yeah it, then, sounds like, it sounds like the young Pete Cowan could have done with an older Pete Cowan at that point. And then the, then six months later, I played in my second tournament and I shot a couple, couple of scores uh, in 73, 70, 73, 79 I shot him. So he kept me on because... I'd improved that much in six months, so it kept me on. And I say, within within four years, I was playing with the player in the Brazilian Open, uh, which is quite odd, really. Sixteen's pretty late, Pete. What were you doing before that? Did you, had you no interest in golf? Uh, football. Or? Fo- fo- no football. I was I was football. I cad- I used to caddy. I was caddied as a a kid at the local course because I lived at the side of a course, but I never played. And. Uh, I carried obviously and played football, and I, w- I was wanted to be a professional footballer and, uh, until I had a really bad injury when I was 15. Uh, I pop, you know, I tried, I had a, you know, tried to carry on, but uh, I couldn't. The injury was too bad. So uh, I was all right for golf, though. So I practiced every hour God sends for, you know, everybody will tell players I used to hit far, far too many golf balls. Ridiculous. I mean, VJ VJ Singh hits a lot, but. I would, you know, give him a run for his money in the times that I used to hit balls. That's for sure. Why, why was that bad, apart from the fact that your body was breaking down a little bit? Uh, because I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just hitting, really. Uh, and what that does with most people is improves the hand-eye coordination, which is how you get better, you know, with with not not really technique. It's just really hitting balls. And the problem I see with golf 
unfortunately, is that we all come to golf having played a moving ball game. You know, whether it's football, tennis, mm-hmm. anything, anything's moving ball. So you're you're always hitting a ball with an implement. So you're always hitting at it. Yeah. And golf's totally different, you know, because the ball's stationary, but you still learn golf like you learn a moving ball game. You're going to hit that ball. Well, why? You know, the ball's not going to move. So you might as well actually make a movement that's going to move the ball. But we don't learn that way. We just pick a club mm-hmm. up and hit it. And unfortunately, that's how we get into all the bad habits. And so knowing what I know now, I'd, I'd never do that. Never do that. So you'd have to... It's a little bit like trying to play a, a piece of music on a piano without learning, you know, the basics, really, of, you know, how to actually do it. So uh, I would... You're, you're being a bit modest here. I mean, you were still a pretty good player. I mean, but was there a difference between, looking back, you'll know better than anybody, about how the, the difference between how good you got and how good you could have got? Uh, well, everybody says to me, well, what makes you a decent coach? And I said, well, I, I think because I knew why I failed. Mm. I think that's one of the main reasons why I failed. And I failed purely and simply because I had a lousy attitude. I was a perfectionist and I couldn't accept that, well, I'd just practiced for eight hours and I could still hit a bad shot. You know, that just didn't resonate with me at all. That So I, the perfectionist in me wouldn't allow me to, you know, hit bad shots. So, uh, so that really spoiled it. So the 16-year-old Pete Cowan walks onto the range today and he's a, he's a blank canvas I mean, how are you going to turn him into a better player than you actually turned into? Right, so it's it's pretty simple, actually, you know, um, and I always relate it to athletes, you know, training to become the best in the world. So in golf, what you do is, let's say I played a round of golf and hit 400 balls every day of my life, which most people haven't done and probably never will. So if you play a full round of golf, you hit probably 40 full shots in that round of golf if you're a decent player, 40. And it takes one and a half seconds every time you hit a shot. So in a round of golf, 40 multiplied by one and a half seconds, that's 60 seconds. You've actually done one minute's physical work on your golf swing in a round of golf that's probably taking you four or five hours. And I always say, well, how many really good shots did you hit? Now, they'll all take five or six. So that's 10 seconds good work and 50 seconds not so good work in a round of golf. So you've actually got worse. You've not got better. And then you're going to hit 400 balls multiplied by one and a half seconds, 600 seconds. That's 10 minutes. All right. So you've done 10 minutes physical work hitting your 400 balls. Physical work. You've thought about it a bit and you've, you know, fiddle about with your grip and you know you move the club but you've actually a physical work involved in the movement is 10 minutes so in a full day that's taking you probably 10 hours five hours on the course five hours hitting balls you've done 11 minutes of physical work that you're trying to the movement you're trying to improve you've done 11 minutes on it and you know when you've done that 10 minutes on the range of it 400 balls they always say well how many good shots and how many bad shots did you hit and they'll say well i half good and half bad i said right so which part does the brain know is correct? Is it the 50% good or 50%? Because it doesn't know the difference. And that's the problem. So really, and truthfully, you can't really get better on that. Um, so 11 minutes a day. So if you went to a top athlete and said, I'm going to do 11 minutes physical work to become the best golfer in the world, <laughs> they'd laugh at you. They'd laugh at you and say, well, how are you going to do that then? And I said, well, it's taken me 10 hours to do it. And I said, well, you know, the actual physical movement's not getting any better. 
you've not actually proved that you're doing it the same every time because you've just admitted that out of the 400 balls that you've practiced, only half of them were any good and half weren't, you know, half good, half bad. So your brain actually doesn't know which half is good and which half. And that's why in golf, sometimes everybody says, well, I was playing really, really well. And all of a sudden this mystery shot came out of nowhere. And I said, yeah, well, that's the brain not knowing which part to give you under the most extreme pressure. It's probably giving you the wrong part. And so you've actually not trained your brain to become better at the movement that you're trying to, you're trying to perfect. You're trying to perfect a movement. So I say, right, golf is not a difficult movement. Your two feet are on the ground. You're not going to fall over. It isn't that difficult a movement. You could actually, and it's only taking one and a half seconds. So you should be able to perfect the movement. Because if a young girl can go on a four-inch beam and do a double somersault and land perfectly on her feet, well, that's a difficult movement, and they can perfect that. We can't perfect a simple movement that we stood on, mostly, you know, without saying anything, you know, the ground's a little bit uneven. Let's say you're on a range and you've landed. We can't even perfect the movement on a flat line. What, so, you te- what are you telling this kid, Pete? What, he's got an hour a day. What, I mean, my kid's 14, loves golf. He's got an hour a day. What should, what should kids like or juniors like him be doing? Well, I always say, look, the, the golf swing is muscle structure. You've got to move the muscles to move the joints to, to get the correct movement. And then the implement is moved as a consequence of that. Right? So you've got to understand what muscle structure you need to actually make sure your club is being delivered consistently every time. So when I ask, you know, somebody said, if you want a big bicep, what do you do? Bicep curl. What do you do if you want tricep? Tricep dip. What do you want? You know, any muscle structure, what do you do? So you've got to understand the muscle structure of the golf swing to actually get better at it. Otherwise, you might as well just stand there and throw golf balls into a bucket and improve your hand-eye coordination because you will, you'll get a little bit better doing that, that's for sure. So is it, is it mirror work? Do they do mirror work? Do they, I mean, do they not hit balls? I mean, well, you've, got to, you've, got to, you've got to understand how the body works, and that's the problem with, you know, is when we're teaching golf, we're still teaching people to hit at the ball. We're not teaching them how to move properly. Well, we should be able to hit the ball blindfold. Why? Purely and simply because I've never seen the club head hit the ball ever in all the millions of shots I've hit. I've never seen the club head actually hit the ball. So I might as well be blindfolded. The only problem with blindfold is it affects your balance. But if you actually could do it blindfold, and you can, you can play a piano blindfold. It's only just movement. You should be able to make a golf, but you can't play tennis blindfolded. You can't play, you know, a moving ball game blindfold. That's for sure. But we can at golf. But we don't. We don't learn properly, unfortunately. And that's, you know, that's me saying all those balls I hit. You know, I wish I'd got my time to come over again because I wouldn't do it. I'd make sure that the movement I'd got was perfected. I remember you telling me once, Pete, that Ben Hogan used to just stand and make swings without hitting the ball well i had i had lessons off uh gardner i mean everybody thinks golf lessons are expensive now but i had lessons off gardner dickinson who used to work for hogan 40 42 years ago and it was 200 us dollars an hour then <laughs> 42 years ago i had to i went to west palm i went to west palm beach frenchman's creek where gardner dickinson was coaching and i had i had 10 lessons over a two-week period $2,000 it was. That was in 
well, 42 years ago. That was a lot of money then. That was a lot of money then. And he's, he, you know, he told me, I said, you know, uh, I, I really, I couldn't go see um, Hogan. So I went to see the next best thing, which I thought the next best thing was obviously Gardner Dickinson, because he actually looked like Hogan with his hat on. Mm. And when he hit yeah. balls, he was pretty impressive when he hit balls as well. And, you know, I wrote everything down, everything down that he told me. And I even asked him, I said, could you actually ring Mr. Hogan up and ask him if I can go and watch him practice? Because at that time, he'd only be 66, and he was still hitting balls, uh, Hogan. So, and he said, yeah. He says, I can ring him up tomorrow or tonight, and he'll say, yeah, come over. Go, go over to um, to Texas and watch him uh, Shady Oaks, wherever he was. And uh, you might get there tomorrow and he might turn around and say, no, not practicing today. No, can't see you. He said, we don't know, unfortunately, you know, what mood he'll be in. And yeah, you could. I still wish I'd have gone. But he said, mm. if I were you, I'd stay here and watch uh, Jack Grout teach Jack Nicholas for two weeks because he's coming over and he's going to do, you know, obviously. And he, Jack Grout was there with Nicholas and uh, Ray Floyd. So we were at one end of the range and you were allowed because lessons were at one end of the range. I was allowed to sit and listen to Grout teach Nicholas and Floyd while I was having lessons off Dickinson. What was uh, that like? It was interesting. It was inter- interesting because I wrote everything down and when I look back at it now, it doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> well, but Grout was a, you know, he was a light touch kind of guy, wasn't he? I mean, he didn't. Yeah, but much. it was it was it was basically uh, he was he was doing what uh, Hogan did and told you what he what he felt he did. Mm. That's you know that's I mean the five lessons are really what Ben Hogan told told uh, when uh, what he felt he did and then obviously relate it in the book. You can understand why he felt those things when I read it. I mean I've read it thousands of times, but you can understand why he felt those things and why he felt you know that. Everything was, you know, how it was in uh, the, the five lessons, but uh, it, it's not, it's not, not relevant to today. I mean, I always, it always struck me about that book, Peter. Was it? And correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, it was always seemed slightly odd that it was the Bible for so many people who sliced, because Hogan was trying to hit a little fade most of the time, was he not? I mean, that was the last thing. Yeah, I mean, you that know, slicers should be reading. He'll tell you, you know, that, you know, when, when he used to overswing in the power golf book, you know, and they had the overswing, he couldn't get a forward airborne. And, you know, you listen to Pursuit of Perfection on the, the DVD and, yeah, he'll tell you that he couldn't get a forward airborne, and, you know, until he actually felt felt that he'd made this movement when he, you know, almost cupped his wrist and kept the loft on. You can understand why that is, you know, because it's what you'll do to actually hit a higher bunker shot, you know, feel as though you cut your wrist a little bit yeah. more. And then they tie a bunker shot. So you can understand why he felt all those things. Um, but to me, to me, it would be understand how your body works. And, and everything's three-dimensional. We live in a three-dimensional world. So turn the shoulders and turn the shoulders is not relevant. <laughs> not a turn. It's not oh, a turn. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to be down... I, I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of three-dimensional uh, right now. The thing is, I'm looking here at your record. You're sort of talking yourself down as a player. You were a good player. You know, it's 26 course records, I think. Uh, did you have 26? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but, uh, but the best, 
the best I could do in a major was 36 at uh, Lytham when Seve won in 79. That was an interesting one because that year I, I lost money on the week at uh, the Open. I finished 36 in the Open that year, that year Seve won in 79. And I lost money on the week. And the reason I lost money on the week is after two rounds, uh, you made the cut, after two rounds, I go on the court in the afternoon, Saturday afternoon, and uh, I was out reasonably late and trying to find the caddy. No sign, no sign of the caddy. So I asked all the other caddies, have you seen my caddy? It was called Silly Billy then. He was silly, that's for sure. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's in that mobile police station just down, down the road. I said, what? So I went down and there's a mobile, big, big um, um, truck down the side there. Near the near the course, obviously, when you walk in five or six hundred yards, and he's it, in there behind the bars in Nobel Police Station. I said, "This guy caddies for me. What's you know? What's the problem? Oh, he's in for non-payment of fines. So I had to pay all these fines that had accumulated over the last three or four years <laughs> and get him out, get him out, so he could caddy for me on the Saturday afternoon. <laughs> so I lost money on the week that week. But if it hadn't been for your caddy, you better finish twenty seventh. So there you go, Pete. That'd be pretty good. I might, yeah, I might well done. I might well done a lot better. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I, I I played with Faherty in the third round, which was quite interesting. He was only a young lad then, Faherty, and uh, that was quite interesting. He was only probably seventeen or eighteen then, but a nice nice player. But he didn't make the cut because there were two cuts then, two mm. a cut after thirty six and a cut after fifty four holes. That is uh, that is new info to me. Is that right, Huggy? Did you know that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I did know that. Yeah, there was two cuts. Yeah. Here, Pete, as a player, exactly how bad was your temper? Uh, horrendous. Was it? Horrend- I mean, not bad. My wife was embarrassed. I mean, it was. Uh, I was telling the story about. Uh, I took my father to watch me um, when I was well, probably in the early twenties to watch me in a tournament. And uh, I got him there, and he, he was—he didn't walk very well. So I sat him by the 18th, and you could see the ninth coming up, and the 18th, and you could see, you know, the 10th, and and uh, he, he could see enough, and he could get himself a cup of tea or whatever it went, you know, when he needed. And I went out and played, and I was that disgusted the way I played, and I was that upset. I just walked over to the car, threw my clubs into the boot, slammed the boot, off I go. And I drive home for an hour and a half. And when I get home, my mother, my mother, says, my mother says to me, where's your dad? <laughs> I'd, I'd, left, I'd left him with the car. <laughs> so, so I had to drive back an hour and a half. And when I got when I got there, my dad says, where have you been, son? I thought I'd like to go and practice, Dad. I didn't play very well. <laughs> oh, good. And the, what the other one when I was, I know my temp, this is another temp, bad tempered one. I, it's, uh, I think it was the opening, 1970. It'd be open up. Yeah, it was. It was 1970. I don't know what would it be, 19. And I'm playing the qualifying for the open, and you qualified on the new course, St Andrews New, which is where they play, practice now for the uh, yeah. Dunhill. You know yeah. that, that new club out, but it wasn't there then. But the the green that they chip on is the 18th green of the new. Mm-hmm. So I knew I was carrying my own bags. Obviously, I couldn't afford a carry then. And I knew that if I made a par up the last, because I was one of the last ones out, I'd get in the open. And uh, 
I, I, I get on the green, no problem. I three-putted it, and, and I, I suddenly realised when I had my card in, I'd missed by a shot. So I walked from the, where the clubhouse is now with my clubs on my back, across that road, across the sand dunes, off, across the beach, and started walking walking into the sea with my clubs on my back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and all the other lads are shouting, come back, you stupid idiot. Come back. <laughs> it's like Reginald yeah. Perrin. Reginald Perrin, that's right. My, yeah. my temper wasn't that great, uh, to be fair. So, uh, and even when... When I when I only won one tournament, which was the Zambian Open uh, uh, in Africa, it was it was actually a good tournament because in '76, uh, Jack Newton had just lost the Open the week, year before to Watson um, at Carnoustie, and they brought him out to Africa to play in three tournaments, and uh, he'd won the first two, and on the third one, which was the Zambian Open, I'd, I held a ten foot putt on the last green and who's the who's the first bloke to congratulate me a local bookie because everybody had backed, backed Newton to win all through three tournaments and because I'd hold that he, he says I, I've stood to lose a fortune I've won a fortune now he's the first bloke to congratulate me when I hold the fortune I, ca- I can't believe the Zambian insiders hadn't lumped on you earlier in the week Pete <laughs> uh, yeah here yeah, I, so, Pete- uh, so it's quite interesting because everybody's saying, well, what sort of tournament was it? And I said, well, it, if you think that that year in 76, Johnny Miller won the Open at uh, Birkdale. He won 6,500 quid, I think. And for the for the for winning the Zambian Open, I, I'm, I, I'm sure I won 3,800 quid. Obviously, I'd withholding tax off them, but it was 3,800 quid. And uh, so it was a fairly big tournament then because the, uh... it was... It was it was part of the European tour then because the guy that the guy that interviewed me his first job now he's about to retire John Paramore's first job for the European tour was to interview me about winning the Zambian Open and beating Jack Newton by so new that was that was John Paramore's first job. <laughs> yeah, Pete, see if you'd had a different temperament, could you have not made it? But but you would have been would you have been a much much better player? Yeah, because because I I say about players, your attitude has got to match your talent. Explain that. You know, if you haven't got an atti- if you haven't got an attitude that matches your talent, so if you've got an attitude that's destroying your talent, you've got no chance. So you become a great player when your attitude can, or your attitude actually, you know, is better than your talent. Can but you, you can't who, go the other way. Who's the best example of that, Pete? Sorry, best who's the best example, example of, of that? The, whose talent matches their attitude now? I think Brooks. Yeah, Brooks. Uh, as soon as Brooks's attitude matched his talent, no holding him. You know, and that that was you know obviously very apparent. You know, three four years ago, because he, he he struggled with his attitude for a while. Couldn't accept losing. You know, and but which he doesn't like losing now. But it was affecting his attitude, and now he's. Obviously, his attitude matches his talent, and he's he's always had the talent. That's for sure. Was it you that helped him with that? I helped him a little bit. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. definitely. Yeah, uh, I remember doing it at um, um, Erin Hills. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, it was uh, it was very apparent that he'd got all the talent in the world, but 
there's one, you know, just one thing that was missing really. It was uh, his attitude needed to match his talent. Can I ask you, Pete, to explain that? It does it mean that you've got you can't think that you're better than you are, or you can't you've got to have belief in yourself? Is that is that what you mean? It's belief in yourself, and you know, belief, and you know, making sure that you actually can accept, um, if you like, playing mediocre golf and still winning. But I couldn't accept playing mediocre. I didn't want to win if I played mediocre golf, and I could see that in I can see that in a lot of players. They don't want to win when they're playing mediocre, whereas the great players, you know, can win however they're playing. Just moving into your coaching career, so you gave up. You kind of gave up playing as, uh, on the circuit. Uh, you took a club job, didn't you? Was it Lindrick? Was it Lindrick? Yeah, I gave up. I gave up playing when I was. I gave up playing when I was twenty-eight, um, which you know, and that's why I said just after I finished thirty-six in the Open, I gave up. The I gave up the following year and took a club job because I couldn't make any money. There was no, you know, you could just couldn't make money. Unfortunately, as a, as a journeyman pro, you couldn't make any money at all. Sorry, Pete, when Well, I was always interested in technique. That's why I went to Dickinson, Gardner Dickinson, and, you yeah. know, took the lessons because I wanted, you know, I was interested in technique. I'd, I'd always prided myself on understanding Hogan and the book and tried to model myself on Hogan by, by digging it out of the dirt and working harder than everybody else. So, you know, then I thought, well, you know, can I help somebody else, you know, become better? And, uh, that's. Uh, I was always interested in coaching, always, you know, getting better. Uh, and I wanted. So my ethos is that I've got to get every day and find a better way of doing it. Otherwise, there's no point in getting up. No. So when, every, when day, did... I, every day, every day, I feel as though I've got to get up and find a better way of doing it. There is one. I might never find it, but I've got to try. Yeah. There's a difference between what you've just said, though, and realizing that you were good at it. I mean, there's a difference between being interested and being really good at it. When when did it dawn on you that this was something that you were exceptional at? Um, I don't think it was exceptional to start. Was I was learning, you know. I think everybody was learning, and uh, I think what I, what happened was I became the best quick fix it coach in my area. Mm. So you know, I had all the best quick fixes. You know, if somebody wanted, if somebody was hooking it or slicing it, the you know, day before they were playing a, a medal or whatever, I was pretty good at fixing them pretty quickly. And so, but that's what most most players, most coaches, clientele is quick fix it stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not development. So what I did, I became the best quick fix it coach. But within that, I also had a development program where I taught kids to you know get better as well. So in my first. My first kid that I really helped a lot was Ian Garbutt when he was about 13. And uh, he just was exceptional, an exceptional player at the mm. time. And one, I think, is still probably the youngest English amateur champion, 17, I think he was. Or just. Uh, and then, obviously, I helped Ian Pyman become British amateur champion. Another, and one of the young girls, he she was... She was English ladies champion at 17 or 18. She won it a couple of times. So all the youngsters from the development program were doing really well. So then that somebody, you know, obviously took notice of that and along came uh, the pros. These good players came to you, Pete. So why did Garbutt, Pyman, why did they gravitate to you and not to some other coach? Um, 
good question, I think, you know, because I was, I've been, you know, getting results with youngsters all the time. And plus the fact that I could demonstrate, I think the demonstration with everything, because a lot of kids learn through watching that the spoken word sometimes doesn't, you know, relevant. So I think that's what happens with my coaching is that, you know, I can actually hit the shots, you know, whether it's bunker shots or, you know, chipping, anything like that. And, you know, the shorter stuff, obviously, I can't hit it 350 yards like Brooks anymore, but um, I can certainly do the short game as well as anybody. So I think a lot of people learn from watching. Certainly Gary, Gary Woodland has learned a lot about his short game from watching me. He's, he's a visual learner. You know, talking to him doesn't mean anything. So Gary's improved his short game massively just through watching me and me demonstrating. Did the day come that, hey, I'm bigger, I'm, you know, I've outgrown this club pro business, I need to go, did you? What, what I, might have still, I might have still been at Lindrick Golf Club if they hadn't have shafted me. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was club pro at Lindrick and uh, mm-hmm. they were going to build a new club pro shop because I was getting broken in, I got broken into a couple of times and I couldn't get insured now, so they're going to build a new pro shop. And they started building the pro shop, and of course, all the stock that I'd got, I had to put it somewhere. So I put it in a certain part of the clubhouse, and um, it got flooded with that part of the clubhouse, and all my stock got ruined. So, and I couldn't claim, I couldn't claim on my insurance because I got no insurance because obviously it was a wooden hut which I was in before they started building the new one. And so I said to the golf club, I said, well, you know, obviously I'm going to have to claim off the club's insurance for all the you know, stuff that's been ruined. And the club refused me to, you know, claim off their insurance. So I just told them to stuff the job and I'm off. And that was it. Upon such I've never, dealt, I've never dealt, I've never dealt with the days past it. I've <laughs> never walked through, through the doors since and never will. Yeah. They pro- but they probably did me a favour, you know. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely did. Uh, what was it like on tour? Did you just go straight out on tour and... Well, you know, the, 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 the silly part about it is that, you know, obviously I was coaching Lee then, um, uh, and Darren came along as soon as Lee started winning tournaments. I was coaching Darren and Lee, and they became the best two European players, along with Monty, you know, for a few good few years. I mean, Lee won 25 tournaments in the first five years, and Darren, I think, won 12. So between them in the first five years, they'd, they'd won 37 tournaments or something you know so it obviously proved that what we were doing was helping that's for sure not saying you made them play but you definitely helped them and uh and then everybody else started resonating and um you know moving moving on to you know me and i had too many players at, at one time far too many players but it, i enjoyed it it was hard work but i enjoyed it and they were all fairly successful so it was good What's the right number, Pete? One. One. Or none. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about Westwood and Clark? I mean, how elevated were they from the likes of Garbutt and Pyman? What I'm trying to get is the difference between a really good European Tour pro and a world-class pro. Well, to be fair, when they were kids, probably Garbutt was probably the better player than Lee. And I remember Lee's, I think... I think Lee's a year younger than Garbutt, and uh, but Lee used to caddy for Garby in some of the tournaments uh, when they were kids. 
Um, and Garby was an exceptional player. Couldn't score because his putting was about as bad as mine. Because I always believe putting should be half a shot. That's another story for another day. <laughs> no, I've read that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Lee, 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 Lee just became, you know, uh, an unbelievable player because he, when I started with him, he was short and wild. And then all of a sudden, he became the best driver of a golf ball for them. Well, he has been since then, since the late 90s. Tremendous driver of a golf ball. You know, nobody better, I don't think. I'm just kind of interested, but what, what separates the two? Is it attitude? Is it raw talent? Is it dedication? Belief. Yeah, belief. You know, belief in a bit more belief in yourself. I always say, you know, with players, they've got to have a bit of twat in them, you know, but, you know, a bit, a bit uh, obnoxious, if you like, without, you know, without, you know, obviously being outwardly obnoxious, but within themselves, they've got to have it, you know, and you see that with players and, you know, you say, well, yeah, I can see it in his eye. He's got, you know, he's got that little bit of spark that, you know, if you just set it off, it's going to be great. Um, and you can see it. You can see it in players. And then you look at other players and they say, there's nothing there. And there isn't. Yeah, I mean, I've said, they, I think Lawrence is, we've talked about this before on here, but they, I've certainly written that, uh, with the possible exception of Nick Price and Sandy Lyle, that just about everybody who's been the best player in the world at any one time over the last 40 years or whatever, they've got a hardness about them. You know, is oh, that yeah. fair to say? Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think he'd struggle without it really in the present climate, that's for sure. Now, how does that yeah. manifest itself on the golf course, Pete, when you see that? Uh, I think <laughs> there's got no give-up bones in the body. Mm-hmm. You know, and if I hit a bad shot, I used to, you know, snap a club or something, and that's that holds a lot of players back. And it certainly held, it certainly held a few players up that I know that you know, with you know that sort of perfectionist attitude that can't accept, you know, a bad shot, and they've got the talent, but they can't actually control it. Uh, and we've seen a few of those, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of guys. That, I mean, I walk along the range, and you know. I'm a, I know a wee bit more about it than most people, but I'm still pretty much a layman when it comes to golf swings. And, you know, you walk along the range and you, there, there's most of the guys now, they hit the ball pretty much great. There's a few that you think, oh, I wonder how he's making money, but most of them hit it great. And you wonder what the difference is between the, the ones that you see, who are, like Lawrence just said, kind of middle-ranking guys are slightly better than that and the guys right at the top of the tour. I mean, it's... it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's an X factor, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's attitude. Yeah. You know, you've got to have the right attitude. And that's that's going to be, always going to be, you know, the number one priority, having an attitude that you actually understand that your talent can't come through with a poor attitude. Mm. I mean, you can have the best swing in the world and a poor attitude will destroy you. Yeah. yeah. You can have the worst swing in the world with a good attitude and still make good money. Yeah, Pete, are you an attitude coach? Do you go in and coach attitude? I mean, obviously you coach technical things, but I, I'm assuming part a big part of your job is trying to get these guys' heads straight. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Once once you've once you've decided, you know, the technical stuff, which isn't that difficult. I don't think technical stuff that. But I always said to the players, and I, I've said it to Henrik no end of time. I said, Henrik, if you'd have listened to me a hundred percent and done what I've asked a hundred percent. 
you'd have been the best player in the world for 10 years. But you listened to me for 25% of it. And, you know, you got to number two in the world and you've done what you've done. I mean, it's got an unbelievable career. Major champion, um, World Cup. He's done, he's done everything in golf. There isn't anything he hasn't done, you know, in golf. And, and, and that's probably listening to me 25% of the time. Henrik's a perfectionist. And I tried to make, you know, make him not a perfectionist. And if I could have just made him not a bit more of not of a perfectionist, I think, you know, he'd have won, you know, six or seven majors. Is Darren another example of that, Pete? Uh, absolutely. Perfectionist. Couldn't accept. Couldn't accept mediocrity. Yeah. You, you've told me brilliant. the story before, but tell it again. The, the week he won player. the Open. I mean, how bad he was early in the week that at St. George's when he actually he went on to win. Uh, well, you know, I mean, obviously it's in his book, but uh, he, he played well the week before up at um, Castle Stewart. Yeah. Castle Stewart, yeah, Inverness. Castle Stewart, and he played well, and he he he, he was up there after two rounds, and then the third round got cancelled, and then on the fourth, third, well, and then they t- transferred it to three round tournament, and he played with he played with Monty and Westwood, and on the last day, and I know Darren because he was playing well, he would have tried to just show them who was boss and win by five and you know and he actually played poorly and he lost it completely so he didn't turn up on the Monday at St George's couldn't be bothered you know so Tuesday morning I was on the range very early probably and Ian, funny enough Ian Garbutt was winning because he was working with ISM then Chubby mm, his man, yeah. Chubby Chandler Dan's manager and Garby was with her it was about half six in the morning and on strolls in the distance, the shoulders down, caddy about <laughs> ten yards behind him, Darren dragging his feet up to the range, and there was nobody else on the range at all at that time. I was waiting for the Callaway truck to open to have a cup of tea, but they didn't get there till about half seven, I think. So, anyway, uh, I says to him, "Are you all right, Darren?" And then, obviously, no, I'm effing not. <laughs> wasting my effing time well, I can't play the game can't put what am I doing here and he went on and on and on and because I'd talked him down off the ledge many many times I thought well should I do it now and there was nobody else on the range so I said well I might as well so then I had to chat to him about his attitude and everything again going to attitude rather than technique can't do this can't do that and I persuaded him that the weather was going to be that bad that week and he was the best bad weather player in the world. So, obviously, he had a chance. And, well, I can't even hit it, so how am I going to do that? Give me one thing to think about all week. So I gave him one thing to think about. And within an hour, he was actually giving us clinics of our driver off the deck, drawn driver off the deck, faded, every, every shot you could hit. So I said, well, are you all right now? No, I'm every knocker. I can't pot. So then he went out. <laughs> he went out and played a practice round. It's all the shots, and as soon as he got on the green, he picked the ball up. <laughs> it wouldn't pop. So, and the next, the next day, I think what inspired him a little bit. The next day, he played a practice round with Rory, Louis, and Schwartzel, and they'd all won majors just before that. All three of them, and they were playing. And then Rory, I think it was Rory. It might have been Louis. They turned round, I think it was 13th when they were walking down the fairway and turned round to Darren and shouted to Darren, where's your major, Darren? Oh. Oh, and his face. <laughs> I mean, it was it was redder than Man United's 
top, that's for sure. So anyway, uh, and then just he just played fantastic, and I mean he just he had the right attitude then eventually, and I think Rotella helped him with that because he'll say mm-hmm. you know uh, Rotella helped him with his putting, you know, um, and it definitely helped. Certainly Rotella helped. Yeah. So again, attitude. They're all they're all neurotic. These guys, a lot of them. I mean, how do you deal with that on a day-to-day basis? I mean, well, it drives you nuts. I think it, I think it, it is neuro- neurotic, but it's the perfectionist in them. And yeah. sometimes you need to have that perfectionist in you to get better because you, you go the extra mile all the time. You practice harder, you work harder, you do everything harder, and you think, well... But the problem is with that, that I see with low players, is because they work so hard, they think they deserve to actually be better. Mm. It just doesn't matter how hard you work. You don't deserve to be the best. Otherwise, there'd be everybody out there practicing 24 hours a day you know, to become the best. You can't. You've yeah. got to have everything in place. Pete, can I ask you about Stenson from the start? Yeah. When you t- 2001, I think, just exactly yeah. how bad was he? Give us some examples of how bad he was, and then how did you take him from that to what he became? Uh... Well, he probably couldn't hit my range, which is about 80 yards wide with a five iron, left or right. So it was uh, it was pretty bad. Uh, he, he played, I think it was a um, place in Ireland where he lost all his golf balls. And, and uh, Grant, who was his caddy then, Grant Berry, uh, he was the guy that brought him to me. He said, well, between, between the drives on one hole on the sixth one day and the next day, when he lost all his golf balls, he said there was 300 yards between the two drives. No. No, there wasn't. <laughs> he was exaggerating. He was exaggerating, but he said it was it was unbelievable how far you know apart these two drives were. So, I mean, when you've got that element in your golf, uh, you're struggling. You really are struggling. So, we had to... Re- it was a complete rebuild, really, because he'd lost total confidence in what he was doing. So it was, you know, complete rebuild, and it took us what two and a half years. But yeah, he but stuck with it. Where do you start with, with that, Pete? I mean, do you start? You know, this is a golf club. This is a ball. I mean, how, how basic does it get? Well, you, you, you. What you say is well. Again, getting the actual movement right. So without the movement, we can't play. Mm. So all of a sudden, he was trying to make compensations with his body to get the club in a position to hit the ball and. It was all wrong. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. a bit like juggling. It could, it, one day you can juggle five balls and the next day you can't juggle one. It's one it was almost got to that situation, you know, and, and lost confidence. And then all of a sudden you've got to rebuild it. It was a just complete rebuild, start again. Luckily, he was, he was exempt for two years because he won, he'd won the Benson Edges in 01. Uh, beginning, but by the end of the year, beginning of '02, he'd lost it totally, and that's when his caddy Grant Berry said, "You've got to help this lad. I think he's got a bit. Of, I think he's got a bit of talent." He says, "But he's completely lost it. You know, he can't play the game at all now." And I mean, he said, "He's a really nice lad, and you know, I think you know you could help him." I, so we did. I tried to get rid of him a few times, but he wouldn't go. <laughs> A pal of mine sent me a 16-minute video of the final round at Troon. It's it's magnificent. I I mean, if it's on YouTube, I don't know if you go on YouTube. I don't know if you care about this kind of stuff. But if anybody's listened to this, it's absolutely magnificent. Henrik's play is. What did you feel that day? Well, that was a lot. 
a long way from 2001. Yeah, to be fair, when he won in Dubai by miles, I think that was the best golf I've ever seen him play. 69 of the 72 greens in regulation just blitzed everybody and and it just was unbelievable. But but then to do what he did at Troon was just, again, again, it's like PlayStation golf, isn't it? Where did you see that? Did yeah. you see it? Were you on the premises? Were you home? Sitting in his car. Uh, well, I was on the premises until he teed off a first tee in the last round. I, I walked him from the range to the first tee. And then I left. I thought, well, I can't do any anything there. So I jumped in the car and started listening to Five Live. Shouted at the radio a few hundred times. <laughs> We're taking up a lot of your time, Pete. Um, but can, can I ask you one thing? You've always been in, uniquely in professional golf, very open about what you charge or what your fees are. Yeah. It's all commission-based. Can you maybe tell people what, what what it does cost for these guys and, and... well the, the, re- the, the reason I did it is because I, I actually I mean if I believed in myself and so I gave as I said I gave up the job and I said right all I'm going to do is take 5% to start with it was 5% of um, top 10 so unless they finished in the top 10 I'd, every week I didn't get paid so I was I was, I was, I was, it was a gamble pure gamble because I got Three kids, a mortgage, and you know, I, I got bills to pay. But I, I believed in myself, so I said, right, I'm willing to get take five percent of any top ten finish you can, and I'll coach you. Uh, so therefore, if you don't finish in the top ten, you pay me nothing, and I pay all my own expenses. I pay all my expenses because I actually believed in myself, you know. And I said, yeah, I can, I can make this work. And then, as I said to you, within five years, Westwood had won five, uh, twenty-five tournaments, and. Uh, Darren had won 12, I think, so 37, and plus other players had won tournaments in the meantime. So he actually did really well. And then Chubby decided that uh, I had to take, you know, uh, a, a reduction in, because it was so successful, uh, a reduction in my percentage. I said, well, I will do, but um, I'll, I'll do 4%, but it'll be 4% of everything now. But if they don't earn anything, 4% of nothing's nothing. Yeah. So I still pay all my own expenses, and uh, I still, you know, obviously only get paid on commission. Um, and I think it's the right way to do it because I don't want to take money off players if they're not doing very well. I've got to, you know, I've got to knuckle down and make sure they start earning money. Otherwise, you know, I'm working for nothing. Not many people like doing that. But I wish football managers would back themselves a little bit more. They want all these big contracts and want this. And that. if you're any good, you should actually have the confidence to say. I'll work just for bonuses. I want big bonuses, but I'll work for bonuses. Mm. Why wouldn't you do that if you're confident in your ability? Yeah, so it's still it's a gutsy move. Still a gutsy move, though, Pete. As you said, with a you know a, a guy like yourself with a, a mortgage and three kids and a wife and all the rest of it, all the other bills coming in. I mean, that's a, that's pretty brave stuff. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you've got to. You've got to. You know, you've got to take the leap and say you know I'll, I'll do it I'll, I believe in myself I, I know you know I've done my I've done my groundwork I've done my homework you know and I know what I'd do if I started all over, I started all over again so you know I think it's important that you do that yeah do you, when you're coaching somebody anybody really is that is there ever sort of eureka moments where you think ah they've finally they've got it or is it just a gradual thing 
Uh, no, it's definitely it's definitely a grudge. Although Westwood got it very very quickly, which I was amazed at really. Uh, when he first came, said when he came to me, he was Chandler sent him to me and said, "Can you look at this lad? He's you know not very good. He's, he was short and wild." And so, as I say, you're right. And, and, and funny enough, he'd won he'd won seven thousand quid in the first eleven tournaments. I think it was ninety five. I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Or ninety six, ninety five, ninety five. Um, yeah, and uh, he came to me, and uh, all of a sudden, I said to Chandler, "I said, well, if he does what I've asked him to do, I said, we could he could earn half a million this kid because he's got he's got all the other stuff. But if he can, he can drive the ball, you know, longer and straighter from where he hits everything else, I said, he could earn half a million, you know, for the rest of the season." And Chandler said, "Oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Well, he did one six hundred thousand and." And in the next 22 tournaments, won 600,000. Then he won in Sweden, I think it was. Sweden. Yeah, he, he was a real, he was a real winner, Lee, wasn't he? I mean, he had if he got himself in oh, position, yeah. I mean, he just won all the oh, time. Incredible. Yeah. World number one. I mean, you know, I mean, he's been unlucky in majors as well, really. Unlucky. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But uh, Pete, I'd still like to see. I'd just like to see him in a major, but huh? you know, obviously. Father time comes along, but you know, still a great. He's still had a fantastic career. Yeah, Pete, was there anyone that got away? You think, oh shit, I, you know, I fucked up there, or, or, you know, is there a player that you would have, you looked at? Thought, oh god, if I could get my hands on him, I would, you know, I'd do this, that, and the next thing together with him. No, I think I've helped a lot of players, but not coach them, but because they'd come for, you know, one-off help, and I've helped quite a few. And I thought a couple might come back, but I'd rather not mention the names. But they mm. probably should have done because they didn't actually progress from there. So it's quite interesting. But, uh, no, I'm, I'm quite happy with what I've done, really. Um, quite happy. I mean, I've got probably, you know, young Tom Peters, is, I think, is as good a player as anybody in the world. If we can get, again, the attitude right. I think, you know, he could still become one of the best players in the world. You've mentioned the short game, Pete, quite a few times. I mean, you know, again, I, I walk, you know, mythical walk along the range there. I mean, there's so many guys just hit it great. Oh, I mean, the shot seems to be logically that the, the short game is the thing that makes the difference, apart from the attitude. I mean, you've really, you've got to be able to chip and putt and certainly putt. Oh, I mean, yeah. How, I mean, how, yeah. how much have you helped the likes of Kepka in that area and made the difference? I think I think an enormous amount really with Brooks. I mean, his short game is stunning now, and, and Gary Gary Woodland's short games have come. You know, I, I once said about Brooks, I said, well, you know, your short game is now four out of ten, but it, when it started, you know, you were one, so you've had a three hundred percent improvement, so you found yeah. to be a lot better. Yeah. So, um, and I think same with Gary, he's on about three out of ten at the moment, but when he started at one, you know, it's pretty big improvement really. Well, just so you know, a pal of mine was playing with Woodland recently, and when you're not listening, Pete, Woodland is beyond complimentary about the work that you've done with him. He, I mean, he absolutely loves it. It's uh, so that, that, that that's good to hear, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's great when somebody can pick up on what you've actually told them and become. Uh, it's, well, do it under the most extreme pressure, like that chip on seventeen oh. at USO. But you know, I mean, I, I got uh, I got a bollocking off Brooks for that. He says, 
you've stopped history. I would have won the Open if you hadn't have helped. <laughs> I would have won the Open three times in a row. I said, you still made history, Brooks. You're the only man to shoot under 73 four times and still <laughs> no. not win the US Open. Yeah. So at least you've, you have made history. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in the chipping, Pete. I mean, I think that you know you hear a lot about people with putting yips, but you don't hear so much about the chipping yips. But I, I've, you know, there's we can only a few of them that have disappeared because of that. And there's guys still playing on the tour with it, I think, or variations of it. I mean, how how common yeah. is it? It is fairly common, you know. But it's nerves, you know. Yeah. It's not definitely nerves. And of course. With putting, I suppose you can get rid of the nerves a little bit by changing the grip, changing anchoring the, yeah. you know, putter up your arm or you know anchoring it up by your chest, but not really anchoring it, and you know, so you can get rid of the nerves a little bit there, but you can't do it with chipping. It's, you know, you've got to, you know, take your balls in your hand and, uh, you know, do it under pressure. Yeah, and that is, it's only been ex- exaggerated or accentuated recently because there's now this trend towards you know tightly cut runoffs off greens and things i mean that that just makes it worse and or, you know it does it does give you the option to putt but it doesn't make chipping yeah. any easier that's for sure no 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 it doesn't i mean it is an art it is technique and once you've got the technique and you build on it then your confidence can go high but most people haven't got a good enough technique that's why they lose it a little bit yeah. is there one just best way to do it on chipping uh there's a definite way of you can you can definitely put a bit of foolproofness into it um with good technique definitely mm-hmm. uh, most people don't understand most people don't understand what a release is in uh chipping and where it comes from uh, Pete we're going to finish with this one question uh during this uh, lockdown uh, all the pros have been on Padre Harrington's on every day with some video or whatever and Luke Donald's at it as well. They're all doing swing tip videos. So I know you don't do that stuff. So for the, just a kind of lay golfer who loves his golf, mid handicapper, what could just give us one thing that they could do to get to, to get much better? Well, most people most people struggle with connecting their arms to the body. So I would say to them all the time. Practice with your feet together until you can match your arm swing to your body turn. And then you'll get better at that. Because most of them are trying to create a lot of power. So they shift the body out of position and their arms are out of position. And they're then not good enough for the hand-eye coordination to, you know, save it, really. So if you can get stand with your feet together and start swinging at 80% and improve it that way, you'll soon get better at it because your body position is much more consistent and your balance gets better. Pete, it's uh, great to have you on. So pleased, everybody. Right. Everybody's Lovely. pleased that you're feeling better. I uh, no doubt see you out in tour soon. Uh, thanks very much for coming on, Pete. Uh, pleasure. All right. Cheers, man. Thanks, you Pete. Cheers. See you soon. I hope. Thanks Cheers.